outside the box of religious obligation lies a road less travelled into the heart of the Father's affection. Slinging freedom all over the place, this is the God Gym. Wayne, I cooked my first elk steak this weekend. You cooked an elk steak? Really? I did. Did you shoot well, this Well, I actually elk? wasn't. Well, no, I didn't. Okay. Um, I'm going elk hunting with some friends this weekend, but the uh, for Thanksgiving, my sister-in-law from New York was coming out, and she hasn't had really any wild game ever, and so I asked a good friend of mine who's a hunter and a hunting guide that it if he had any elk laying around. It was, so they were elk steaks, and then I thin sliced them and did a balsamic reduction with roasted garlic and avocado as a topper. And it turned out really well. It was absolutely incredible. And it led to the best thing that I heard uh, that week was, Kyle, you're actually a really good cook. Oh. <laughs> that was my sister-in-law from New York who like tur- like paused in some mild astonishment because that's been the running joke that, I, that I'm the cook in the family. But there was like some mild astonishment of, oh, you actually can cook and this actually was good. And so it was a lot of fun. Given the fact that she's married to a professional chef, yeah. I I took that as a major compliment. So I guess you could. My goodness, I, <laughs> I don't know that I would bury my meat under whatever balsamic something avocado. I'm one of those guys that goes to a barbecue house and no barbecue sauce, man. I want the meat. Dry rubs cool. Don't be my messing my meat up with uh, some kind of barbecue sauce that doesn't taste near as good as the meat already tastes. Mm, Unfortunately, that's, last that's week, fair. Sarah and I went out to dinner with a couple and uh, ordered some stuff and forgot to tell them to hold the barbecue sauce. So, <laughs> And then it comes and I'm going, oh, crud, I messed this up. And it reminded me. And this was actually pretty good barbecue sauce, but still, it wasn't okay. better than the meat. I went back two days later and got what I really wanted without the sauce. <laughs> <laughs> and was it as good as you had hoped it was going to be? Oh, I knew. I knew. I've had it before at this restaurant. It's, oh, okay. Yeah, it's, they got a great dry rub, but when they put barbecue sauce on, oh, they buried the taste. If you want barbecue <laughs> sauce, get a bowl, get a spoon, eat all the barbecue sauce you want, but don't ruin good meat with it. Uh, of course, that's... elk may need it. I've had elk, and I'm telling you, it's. I don't love the game year meats. <laughs> I guess okay. I've been spoiled on the old uh, pork beef chicken thing, but. This elk was not very gamey as far as flavor goes, and it was it was pretty tender overall. And man, the flavor was just turned out phenomenal. Because I just did a. Have you ever done a, a butter bath on your? This meat? is not a cooking show. Kyle. It is not a cooking show. <laughs> yeah. That's true. The, That's the, true. The God journey. God, <laughs> you got to start a podcast for yourself, Kyle. Where you just okay. do these <laughs> food preparation things. I no, I've never heard of it. Whatever it was. All right. Well, we'll we'll talk about butter baths at another time. But I did a butter bath on it that was really good. Okay. Well, <laughs> do you have a good Thanksgiving though? Uh, yeah, we had a great Thanksgiving. New puppy makes for a lot of attraction around the house and a lot of fun and a lot of entertainment value. So yeah, that was great. Okay. And we said goodbye to our other pup and put her underneath a rock in Sarah's garden, the ashes of our previous dog. So Abby's back here on the property with us, but uh, we missed that little thing. But life moves on, so we're now fully into the Mandy years, and uh, see if we survive those. I was going to say, I mean, is it interesting to think about, even in the context of the Mandy years, and what might come in the next 10 to 15 years for you guys? If we make it that long. We hope to outlive her. That's what we're working on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) 
Our kids have always said, because Sarah's always said, I'll have a dog till I die. And the kids are like, well, then we should pick out your dogs for you if uh, we're going to end up with them. And so we always think about that now. I think, should we let the kids pick out this one? And and we see the, the dogs our kids have picked. And so we decide to get our own. <laughs> what kind of dogs have your do- kids picked? Oh, my daughter's into beagles and my son's into, they do, they do rescue dogs, which is great, but they're okay. medium-sized dogs, not you know, we like a, we like a big dog retriever size, lap size. So gotcha. Anyway, we're down that road. I'm Wayne Jacobson. And I'm Kyle Rice. And so we've already got the best thing you heard this week, huh? Already in? We did. Yeah. You saw yep. some cooking all. What about you? I don't, I don't really have a great, great quote. I've got some things that, that I want to talk about, but I, I think that one thing I've been listening to a podcast and a set of podcasts that describe some disconcerting things to say the least. And in the middle of listening to some of that, I, I really know because of all the people involved, people I was related to back in the day when I went left and they went right. And I don't mean that politically. I just mean, I went down that pathway. They went down this pathway. Mm-hmm. I could see if God had not invited me down a different road. And if I had not heard that invitation to go down a different road, this is where I would have ended up. This this would have been my life. And it's kind of, when you look back over 30 years saying, if I'd gone down this road, I would have ended up in this space. And thank God I didn't. Thank God I didn't go down that road. Never more grateful than how mm. God intervened, how God invited me, and knowing I would not have traded my life for that life for anything. Hmm. Even though at the time, I, th- I think there were decisions that kind of like, ooh, it was hard not to go that way. And to be obedient to that nudging in my heart. Now I look back going, thank God. God." (laughs) Do you think you would have realized what you missed in that invitation if you would have continued down that road? Like, do you think you would have played that road out to the end? But it's hard to say, obviously. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, What concerns me is people I was in sync with back then, they've not second guessed the road. At least as far as I know, if they've done second guessing, they've kept doubling down in the path that they chose. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that's true. I mean, I know I've done that, particularly in my younger years, where you're, you're, you're not sure this is the right road, but you've got so much investment in it now that you don't think about going back and reconsidering some of those things. So you keep doubling down. And in this case, I would say doubling down in the darkness, even though I, they, they wouldn't say that by any stretch. They think they have yeah. landed in the the best God has to offer his church. But I would say, I don't think so. And mm. somehow, even their actions, as complicated as they are, it hasn't caused them to rethink anything, Yeah, which is absurd to me. It's bizarre, because you've ended up not reflecting the character of Jesus. And for those who don't know what in the blazes we're talking about, someone sent me a podcast called uh, about politicology, which I went, eh, I don't know if I mentioned that, except that they were, the subject of this one was the charismatic revival fury. That was, I'm charismatic Hmm. revival fury. What is the name? What is that? And then the sub thing was how networks of extremist Christian leaders helped instigate the January 6th insurrection. And now I'm like, okay, now I'm really interested because for what I all thought January 6th was, and I know there were a number of well-meaning Jesus-following people who got caught up in that, I didn't think it was necessarily instigated by that group. 
And then mm-hmm. when this podcast begins to ferret out how that happened, and we'll put the link to it in the bottom of our podcast so people want to hear the original. And that that's all part of a larger well, the guy who was being interviewed is Michael Taylor, and he's is a senior scholar at the Islamic Christian Jewish Studies Center, and he's former professor or former teacher at Georgetown University. And he's done this whole study on the new apostolic reformation, which mm-hmm. see Peter Wagner's uh, one of the names behind that. And Cheon and Lou Engel and Bethel. I mean, just the names that come spilling out of this whole revivalist culture. I, I guess the biggest part that made my heart hurt, not only, and we can get into how they contributed to January 6th, and I, I still meet people who feel like that that wasn't an insurrection, and to call it an insurrection is to join the side of the, uh, the mainstream media or lamestream media, or whatever they call it. And I just go, you know, it, it was an armed resistance to the future of the republic in, in terms mm-hmm. of election. So it fits whatever an insurrection is, even though I know it causes people great concern. And then this new apostolic reformation thing popped up, which I, this was, this is like 30 years ago when this was starting. Mm-hmm. And I thought it pretty much faded off the map, particularly after Peter Wagner passed away in 2016. But no, it's been percolating underneath the surface, affecting a lot of streams of church life that and I would say it's from my people, from the people I grew up with, this charismatic orientation of spiritual gifts and apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, and and this unrelenting quest to find revival. Mm. And so I sent it to you so you could listen to it, because I'd be interested in, I mean, th- these are my people. I grew up with this. You're a younger guy that missed all that. So I just wonder what it looks like from your standpoint. I am, but I'm not. You know, as I, as I was listening through the podcast and and I was just thinking about and reflecting back, it's like, man, a lot of these messages were definitely entangled in my upbringing as well. And especially in more of the, it's interesting, uh, more in the YWAM community. And then when I was in Los Angeles, the the people that we spent a lot of time with, there was a lot of talk about Bethel. And some of the people had gone and done a you know, school of supernatural ministry or some of those things. And there was this undertone of, we want to see revival break out. And just the idea, like, you know, how in the, in the podcast, they go through kind of the history of some of the, the significant revivals that have been taking place in the United States and how that has shaped Christendom in the U S and the expression of Christendom in the U S over the years. And I think about, Now I'm going to blank on the place where the most recent one was that was in the news and people from all over the world were coming and being a part of it. Oh, Asbury Um, Asbury Seminary. Yes, Asbury Seminary. And there was just this need for, for revival. And my thought just keeps coming up. Well, what does revival look like to you? Like when you're thinking about revival, what does that actually mean to you? Because, you know, when... I have a lot of dear friends that some of them were in D.C. on January 6th and people who were considering going up there, being a part of of that, because what they were hearing in their camps is we're going to go and we're going to pray the reestablishment like we're going to pray this into existence. We're going to pray the reestablishment of Trump in a big, bold way into into office. And he is God's appointed 
We're going to pray revival over the country that uh, that there continues to be this momentum of conservative rights and conservative values being reestablished in American culture. There was a lot of that, a lot of conversation that was going on in that regard. And so it, it was very intriguing to me as I was listening to this and being like, I didn't know a lot of the names like Cheon and some of those names, uh, Lou Engle, I know knew that name, but a lot of the names I wasn't familiar with, but the ideologies I have definitely seen the residuals of, which hmm. was really intriguing. The, the link to January 6th was this whole prophetic mm-hmm. idea of Donald Trump being the, the man to take the political mountain. This goes back to the whole seven mountain strategy, which yes, how you heard how that took shape. I mean, all these things, when I first heard them, they always tweaked my yuck meter, and I didn't always know why. I'm just going, okay, that sounds kind of yucky. The, the idea that it started with uh, Lauren Cunningham and Bill Bright of YWAM and, and Campus Crusade, and it was just kind yeah. of like Christians ought to be in these environments impacting the world rather than being in a subculture to themselves. And yep. it's more from that to Christians being there to Christians need to dominate them on behalf of the culture, because we, and one of the lines that was drawn in, not not the original podcast, but this other series I've listened to, was the idea of, of dominion theology got tied into this, where you, you must have dominion over, the Christians need to take dominion back from the devil. So anybody that opposes us is of the devil. So that that's how we frame everything. And even talking about, and I got an email, gosh, a month ago from a lady that said, because she was commenting about He Loves Me in one chapter of the book, says, we don't do child sacrifice today when I was talking about the whole history of child sacrifices. And she said, I'd really disagree with you because I think we do. I think abortion is child sacrifice. And I'm going, okay, I understand the metaphor of that, but uh, they're not being offered to appease the gods in the sense that child sacrifice was back in the day for religious worship reasons. But then on this podcast, it comes across that exactly they there's a whole revelation from the prophets that the blood of the abortions empowers democratic political power. So they've tied directly to not just the abortion agenda that most Democrats have or the pro-choice agenda, but the idea that for every baby that dies, they get more power. So now we've reframed this in some kind of cosmic, which the the title of this podcast was Holy War Part One, and they haven't run Part Two, which is kind of frustrating because oh, they ran Part One so like annoying. months ago, and I don't know what happened to Part Two or if they're ever, ever going to run it. They, they said it was coming, but they haven't. But they they talk about the whole passion behind some of this was the revival theory, which we've got to have this revival. And the prophecies were that that Donald Trump would be miraculously put into power on January 6th, that that was going to happen. And that's why they were all there. They were praying for it. They were looking for it. And it was not just that he'd be put back in power. It was when God did this thing, the third great awakening would happen in America that there'd be this revival breakout to rival the first and second great awakenings of previous centuries. And so they had a whole lot invested and these prophecies that he really was elected and it was stolen. uh, And then they've got to fight the, the fit into the Trump narrative, obviously of wanting to reclaim power for himself. And that's what led to this massive outpouring of passion and there's some connection to the Proud Boys, some connection to some of those military yeah. arms of things. And I just sat there and went, oh, my goodness. 
These are people I knew. If God hadn't sidetracked me to a different way, would I have gone down those roads? Would I have? And part of me, I remember being a revivalist. I, I, you know, when you go to a service every Sunday and you realize no service on Sunday matches the desire of what real revivalist power would be like. I mean, living like Jesus, healing the sick and raising the dead. Yeah. It does get routine after a while. Even we change worship service, worship dynamics. Some things are better. And then over time, it's just, it's the same thing on Sunday. And I think most of my friends who've stayed as part of Sunday morning gatherings are always talking about revival, which to some degree is an admission that what we're experiencing is not great. <laughs> we want it to be bigger and better and more visible. And a lot of this revivalist idea, and they, they bring this out in the podcast, isn't so much for new people to come to know Jesus. It's not about that. It's the revival is the power of Christians over the culture. It's to reassert that dynamic, even changing the Great Commission, that it's no longer go and make disciples of all nations mm -hmm. like people, but go and disciple a nation. And the way you disciple a nation is you take over these seven influential mountains. It used to be just fears of influence, and then it became yeah. yep. mountains to dominate. And then it was, and even, and I didn't know this, even the idea that Donald Trump is a candidate to be at the top of the political mountain because he was at the top of the business mountain, which that could be argued whether he in fact was or not. He was a he was a businessman of sorts and yes. well known. But and then the entertainment, he had a TV, he had a reality show that did somewhat. And so now they've got him at the top of those. And then what they talk about is you've got to play the rules. If you're going to dominate that mountain, you've got to play by the rules of that mountain. So it doesn't matter. Honesty, integrity, those those things, which is why Donald Trump's character was never important to these Christians who saw him as this Cyrus guy, and all that beginning with Lance Wallnow, who declared the whole Cyrus scripture and some vision in the night to do all that. And everybody, and everybody bought into it as a rhetoric because they were so blinded by this need to have a revival hmm. that they've been seeking and that, that, that Toronto was a foretaste of, or Bethel was a foretaste of, or they, they go down the whole line from the very beginning of Vineyard to Toronto to, to Bethel to the New Apostolic Reformation, which is, they say, is the biggest influential group of people no one's ever heard about because the term never <laughs> caught on beyond that group of people. And some of it, you know, it's decentralized. They haven't created a lot of institutions, but they have taken this idea of apostolic and prophetic authority, saying it's been missing from the church for 2,000 years. It's being restored in our day. So there's people who call themselves apostles, and they all have prophets attached to them. So there's prophet councils and apostolic councils that are praying and doing stuff that actually believe if you're an apostle in this genre of things— you have the right to declare something over a country as the apostle informed by your prophet or the prophetic voices around you. They have the right to declare it to be so, and God has to cash the check. They really got these guys controlling God. And what's remarkable to me, whenever they play an audio of some of these people talking, whether it's a prophecy or a preachment or a pronouncement, it's always so angry. I don't know if you noticed that. Very intense, yes. Very passionate, but it it leans more towards the anger side of passion than, than yeah. 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 Yes. 
And it's real, it's real loud. It's real bashing. Yes. It's real. It, it's all of that. And it's, again, it's trying to whip people into a frenzy. And so what they said was behind this, and there was, you know, Cheon was on the mall on the 5th of January, having this thing, why it's important that we all show up, why it's important that we do this. And then he was there on the 6th. And then he actually goes back to his hotel room. He doesn't go to the Capitol. He goes to the hotel room, ostensibly to relieve himself. But then he said he fell asleep. He's going to take a power nap, fell asleep. By the time he woke up, Capitol thing was over. So he missed that. But this was the thing he's recognized as one of those top prophets that could call this thing down just by making it true. And now what's interesting about it, when these prophecies turn out to be wrong, you know, in the Old Testament, prophecy turned out to be wrong. You stoned the prophet. That was the deal. Here, when they're wrong, Trump's going to be reelected. No, they just reformat the prophecy into either the devil thwarted it or we didn't hear right or, you know, we heard it metaphorically and it, you know, wasn't meant to be physically. And it's coming in 2024 instead. Uh, I mean, just, yeah. Yeah. And I know I've, I have close friends in my life who buy into this culture and they get angry when you challenge it. They get angry when you talk about, oh, maybe you guys missed something. Maybe January 6th was just people whipped them to a religious fury. And that's what this is called, the fury. And where the fury comes from, he says, is from the hope of a revival and the frustration that it doesn't come. So it's hope yep. and then frustration and seeing who thwarts that. Was it the Democrats? Was it the secularists? Was it, you know, whomever? And I just, it made my heart hurt for how much this people I love and people I care about fomented this thing and people buy into it who are, I would say, not very discerning as to the nature and character of God. I mean, they even talk about that character is not important. Success is what's important. It's getting, <laughs> it's the goal, the methodology, whatever we have to employ is fair game. And we're going to pray and bash and the, the, the guy at the end of this said one of this that I thought was really, really good. The apostolic, the whole apostolic reformation was created this council of apostles and prophets who really is the, the, the new structure for the church is an oligarchy of apostles and prophets, people who are especially close to God, especially anointed. It's actually a ruling elite that sees what needs to be true, and everybody else just goes along with it. There's no feedback into it. There's no accountability with it. And part of what they went on, divinely power-empowered spiritual war leaders to mobilize heavenly armies and God's people to secure Donald Trump's re-election, Christian supremacy, Christians should be the premier citizens of and exert co coercive influence over society. Christians are superior to others and should dominate society. And so they have a plan in place to take over every society with Christians in power. And that's just not America. It's Brazil and Uganda and all over the world. There's this prophetic weight to a lot of Christians being directed toward these ends and toward these goals. Hmm. And the journey that God invited me on it just makes that just un impossible for God to be in on that. It's not like, hey, you know, maybe God could be over there doing some of that stuff. Yeah, there's a vengeful side of God, and then there's a tender, loving side of God. But man, knowing that the healing of the world is not going to come through the vengeance of Christians doing warfare for God, 
but mm-hmm. Christians who exemplify his love and humility and brokenness in the earth. And, and to me, those are two very divergent roads. <laughs> it is. And there have been times this group has visibility and power and controls a lot of stuff. And those who've gone a more decentralized route of learning to live in Father's love then carry that same outward kind of success. And again, I, I think for me, my first thought is, well, according to whom, you know, is when you think about outward success, like even that, okay, yes, you may amass some financial equity or, you know, you might amass some notoriety, but then even in that, we've seen a lot of very blatant pictures of, that going awry with, you know, Mars Hill, Hillsong, I mean, all of these different names that have been in the media in the last 10 years of the supposedly people who've been living in success. And, and that was the interesting thing about this podcast that I was intrigued by is the whole conversation about how they were, they were more of these fringe people, these un, like you said, the decentralized fringe people that all of a sudden are in the inner circle of Donald Trump and their inner circles of power. And they're the ones that are calling the shots and they're the gatekeepers to the quote unquote established Christian elite. And, you know, when I hear like a group of elites running a group of Christian elites that are running, it's like, huh, that, that sounds vaguely familiar. Sounds a lot like uh, how the Sadducees might've been running society or, you know, that, that sounds like we've uh, seen that ruling class show up in his human history a few times in the past. It does. And if you're, and what I think people don't realize if you're inside that oligarchy, if you're inside that ruling elite, man, you don't see beyond it. You just think this, that, yeah. that the seduction of power the seduction of influence, the seduction of the idea that I can declare things that God has to fulfill. Yes. That we have the power to do that. And that's how God meant for us to shape society. When you can find no example of that in the life of Jesus, not, not even a little bit, right? He's the firstborn of the new creation. So if he's not responding, though, if he's not standing on a mountain affecting Roman, that exactly the same thing that the Jewish believers wanted of a Messiah is that they would write the wrongs of history and put the Jewish nation back in power. And when Jesus doesn't do that, that's a big part of their disillusionment, right? Yeah. Seems like we've come full circle back to our captivation of power and our ability to coerce society to live to our norms isn't a democracy that this group of Christians is after. They're actually back to, they really want a, a democracy of our people against those people, right? And it's not, because democracy isn't about majority rule. You might say, well, more people are Christian in America than anything else, so we should have a Christian nation. But democracy is about protecting the rights of those who are outside the majority, as well. And it's a, it's a rule yeah. of law, not just popular votes. And I, I think that escapes my brothers and sisters who often are so adamant about liberty and justice and freedom for all, but they really mean it for themselves. We want our freedom to do what we want and make others conform and really see it as God's mission. God's made us, God's equipped us, God's asked us to help stir this revival, the hours of prayer people have put in, prayer meetings and oh. 
I was in that when I, man, we were getting up six in the morning and we're trying to pray in a revival, the second Chronicles 714 scripture, if my people pray and all that can be twisted into a way that says these things are in our hands and we control it and we can make revival happen. And then there's the disillusionment of people I know have been at this for 40 years <laughs> who've been part of some of these revival moments and yet still are praying for this great revival to happen that hasn't happened yet. They're still looking for something. And that's one of the things I noted about going on the journey that I went on 30 years ago. The people I met who were experiencing God's love and transformation internally were not sitting around talking about revival. They, they, there was no obsessive pining away for this revivalist culture. They were living in the midst of, if you want to use the word revival, they're living in the midst of a yeah. God who's fresh and alive and working in their hearts. And they could see that dynamic happening and then it touching other people. And so they already feel like they're living in this sense of revival, not mm. there's something greater still to happen that matches not just whatever the Great Awakening was, but the, our misconceptions of it now as to what it might have been. Because we've idealized those things in our past that are very different from what actually happened a century or two ago in these moments of Great Awakening. And now we're trying to manufacture them. And even that Asbury thing you mentioned, there, there's a whole, I mean, that thing died out really quick. Mm -hmm. And it turned out what they were calling spontaneous was actually being cultivated months before, talking about this night, this thing, this is going to happen. And it actually wasn't so spontaneous at all. It was orchestrated by some of these very same people who were holding these meetings on the mall in Washington prior to December, January 6th. And then we're actually there on January 5 and 6 as well to stir that passion into an attempt. And it wasn't to overthrow the government in their own power. It was to provide the environment in which God could overthrow the election and give it back to whoever rightly deserved it, Donald Trump, in their minds. Because he, he got known as the savior and protector of the Christian people in America by these voices who lent their credibility to him because he had the power and they had access to that power. Mm. And so having abortion thing uh, overthrown by the Supreme Court was a, was a big deal for them. And now it's going to the state. So now it's not necessarily a great victory anymore because states are somehow approving use of it. So it didn't fix anything because it didn't outlaw abortion. It just overturned Roe v. Wade, which is saying it's not a constitutional right. Uh, at least federally speaking. So, yeah, man, and I don't, I don't like abortion any better than the next guy. I don't. I just I, there's so many better answers to deal with that kind of situation than just to exterminate life. I agree with that, but I don't agree. That this is a blood sacrifice feeding the demonic power of democratic forces. I just go, what do you have to do? How desperate do you have to believe to believe that kind of stuff? How desperate do you have to be? And yet, it was interesting that you say that. Because literally today in class, I was in my sociology class, I was laying out to the students their final project. And the final project is on social movements. And we were talking about the buildup and the impact of different social movements. And especially mo more recently, you know, they talked about the students were talking about how, well, you know, social movements can become so, so big and so um, so furious so quickly because of social media, because of regular mainstream media. There's a lot more access. It's being pumped out there into the world. 
And yet one of the movements that my students got approval to do research on is people identifying as Satanists so that they could get abortions because then it allows them to have protection under religious rights. Which was, and I was like, what? Like I hadn't even heard of yeah, this social movement. Idea. And this is this is a mainstream college student that's bringing this up. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this as my research project. And I was like, sweet. I can't wait to read it. Um, but we were talking and, and she, the student was talking about how, yeah, it, it came up and, but literally like it was on, it was on her feed, you know, for three or four months and then it was gone. Then it was on to the next thing. And we were talking about some of these different social movements and how they they flame up so quickly, but then they burn out so fast as well. And I think I'm thinking about that in the context of revival, right? Because revival is a social movement. It is a movement that's taking place, that's supposedly changing or altering society, that's impacting culture, that's impacting worldview. And so if we have this, this social movement that's taking place that we're calling revival, and yet you look at recent social movements and how, yes, they've fanned up quickly. There's been a lot of hype. There's been a lot of intensity around them, but then they flame out and there's no real long lasting impact. And yet you think about the civil rights movement and how that was a slow burn. There were people that slowly built up this whole, the conversation about equal rights. And uh, there was a building of ideology. There was a building of strength. There was a building of foundation along this idea. And then all of a sudden they're starting to change law. They're starting to change culture. And I think about that brought me back to our conversation about this idea of God moving in people and bringing up a generation of people that don't look like the brand of Christianity, but have a deep heart for father and a deep desire to see God's love manifested in the world. And yet I don't think those are going to be the people with the bullhorns. They're not going to be, but I think I, I just get the sense that that's that slow burn. That's that that foundational God's been doing this work in and amongst society for years, if not decades in drawing people's hearts to the service in these, in this unique way, but it's not this, there's not the hunger for revival. It's God's moving and God's drawing his love into the world and, and bringing up conversations about his heart in context and in communities that don't necessarily have that conversation or even use that language. And yet it's happening. And yet, even using the analogy of the civil rights movement, it is a slow burn, took a long time, and there was a whole lot of opposition, people oh who were gosh. jailed, imprisoned, beaten, killed, because they were advocating for a freedom that many in society didn't want to didn't want to give, didn't want to call out Correct. in the same way. So, Correct. yeah, the, that, that road is all, I think of Stefan in the podcast I did with him a couple of years ago, where he's talking about being in this, coming to this big fair in the middle of the street and all, all the things he ever wanted, and and there was a no admittance sign on that for him. And there was a little pathway to choose the path of love instead yeah. of choosing the things in the culture. And I, I I know all the things I obsessed on as a young man, wanting to be a big, successful writer, wanting to have influence in the Christian environment, wanting to, wanting to, wanting to. And for for my peers at that time, found this new apostolic reformation to be that. Mm -hmm. And I was working on a book after I'd published The Naked Church years ago called A New Structure. And, and this whole new apostolic reformation is all an obsession with structure, that the mm -hmm. church, the government of the church wouldn't be democratic, because we tried that in terms of 
church polity, or we've tried elder-led, or we've tried authoritarian. And the real thing is this collegial gathering of elders and whatever that aren't beholden to the people, that do see God better, can lead people better in God. I, I look at some of those trends back in the day going, man, that that stuff would have appealed to me. Except for a conversation I had in Australia where Kevin Smith looked at me in the eyes. You know, we read The Naked Church. We loved it. But what we realized is you don't yet know that Jesus didn't leave us with a structure for the church. He left mm-hmm. us with his spirit and that he would guide us. And I know these people in the revival's culture claim to be led by the spirit. But interestingly mm-hmm. enough, they get to be led by the spirit. Everybody else needs to follow them. They need to see their insights, follow it. And you actually give over your conscience to your leader, whether it's your pastor or your apostle, whatever. You know, you're, you're afraid to make a decision. You're afraid to understand what Scripture means until you've heard it reinterpreted by your guy, by, by the, or a woman, the person who brokers God's relationship with you. And I just, one of those things I've listened to all this was how important it is that we each live our conscience and that we don't give it away to another person. We don't let someone else tell us what God's will is. We don't let someone else define this by prophetic. They've, they've come this whole seven mountain thing. And all these things are based on prophecies, not, not mm-hmm. indicative in scripture. They're, they're not, in fact, much of scripture would lean away from the very kind of thinking they're, they're into. But because God revealed it, and because they have a way to say that it's true, and people don't question it. And, you know, who am I to question this guy who's got 70,000 churches under him, or this person who's prophetically recognized all over the place? Even if, I mean, I met some of these people in the earliest days and went, something doesn't taste right here. Something, something smells fishy. Can't always tell you what it was. Couldn't always tell you what it was. But... Definitely went, I'm not going that way. I, I don't, that's scary to me. That's not going to get there. I know one point the new American, Ref, the new apostolic reformation, I keep getting American, the new apostolic reformation was saying that unless you have a net worth over a million dollars, you cannot be apostle because apostles are sex, successful people. Hmm. And that died out at some point. I don't know if that's because someone read some scripture and couldn't get hard-pressed to put that on Paul or Peter or <laughs> James or John or some of those critters. Certainly not Jesus. But that was a thing because entrepreneurial success is real important to recognize a significant gifting in someone's life. That, that's, how this, that's why there was no disconnect from the character of Donald Trump to, no, no, he, he's he been successful in these arenas of business. So the character isn't important. God can use people who don't have character and who aren't even following him. In fact, one of the things Cheon said on January 5, he said, we are going to rule and reign through Donald Trump under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That they really saw him as the tool by which Christians would rule and reign. Now, that didn't happen. None of the none of what they advocated for that day came to pass. It all kind of blew up in their faces. And yet now they're just re-engineering for, well, what got thwarted then will get back now. And the passion is still there. When I think of Bob Prater's vision about the spirit of religion and the spirit of politics dancing over the United States. And I had no idea when Bob and I talked, he had this dream slash vision that he wanted to share, that he shared with me. And I said, hey, man, come, let's talk about it on the podcast. Because I think, I think that's really <laughs> insightful for what we're dealing with. I had no idea 
when he shared that, that that was already true. I'm, I'm, to me, it was like mm -hmm. the potential of it could come true. You merge yeah. politics and religion, and you're going to get this unholy dance. Remember, and it was uh, scored by Hillsong-type worship music. The rally on January 6th before they went to the Capitol had a worship band who, between speakers, would do worship sets. There, there, there was a much more of a charismatic moment to that than I was led to believe. And I, I think that stuff gets left out of the media. The media doesn't cover the Christian side of it or the religious side of it. They just want to paint all these people with a broad brush. That they, But there were people there who, because of their religious fury, hmm. wanting a revival, being thwarted in that revival, wanting a Christian nation, feeling thwarted in that by the Supreme Court, by the powers that be, by the Democratic Party, by whatever. And I, I, I sit there and say, man, I can't think of if we're going to have a Christian nation and it's going to be led by these prophets and apostles that have self-proclaimed and, and their character and their anger and their desire to dominate the power structures of the world, that's not a, that, that's not a Christian America I want to live in. <laughs> not even close. I think, I think about all this, especially when I think about the the worlds and the different cultures that I grew up in and, you know, Lauren Cunningham growing up in the Y, you know, being a part of the YWAM culture for a period of time. And, and there being some really good things that came out of that. And yet I, I think about also the, the level of immersion in YWAM. Cause when you're in YWAM, you're in YWAM. And it's like this very intentionally crafted bubble experience. Yeah. And and I think about that and I'm like, man, what, what would it have been like if I had been, if I had accepted the leadership opportunity that I was offered and stepped into that role and gone down that road? Like, where would I be at today? Uh, or, or likewise in LA, where I was in a leadership internship at a mega church and, and literally the person who was supposed to be mentoring us was talking about the leader of the church. And we're saying, oh, no, that person, had. they just have a special, they have a very unique relationship with God. You can't even begin to think that you're going to have that kind of relationship with God. That's only for the select. That's only for the elected. That's only for the elite. And I just thought to myself, then what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, like that, that pegged my yuck meter so hard because it was like, okay, so if there isn't an opportunity to grow in a conversational intimacy with Christ, and learning to walk with him and in his heart in the world, then what am I doing here? You know, like, yeah. and so, you're here to serve that vision. That that's yes, why you're there. That's literally why I was there. To Absolutely. contribute to it financially, physically, yes. labor-wise, passion-wise. Free labor for 18 months. This whole thing reminds me, we used to have two dogs on the farm growing up as a kid. And these dogs would, you know, they're the protectors of the farm, whatever. And one of them would kind of sense something in the wind or hear something and bark. And the other one bark. And then they get up and they both barking. And then they're chasing off after something that doesn't exist <laughs> because they, they encourage themselves into this kind of fury thinking they're seeing something. And eventually it just, it just runs out. And I think that's true of this. This is just all nonsense and noise and fury and anger. And what happened? This is what I'm always concerned. What happens when this runs out, when this doesn't mm. get to the mountaintop? that they've promised the people. Right now, you can keep saying, well, we're not there yet. We just need to put a little more effort. In. And we, we go back and do it again. We do a better way. And they, they can keep generating that passion for a while. 
eventually it's going to follow its own weight because God's not in this. I, I, there's not a bit. It's all God's things that got used for man's ambition. That's how I would see it. Hmm. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that runs out in time. And then all the people who put so much into this thinking they were doing God's work are now either going to be disillusioned with God or they're going to have to find another place where Jesus makes himself known in their hearts and a different way to live in the world than try and get the world to live the way we want them to without knowing the Jesus that we know. Thank you for traveling with us today on The God Journey. You can join this conversation by visiting thegodjourney.com. 